Well, if we could, this evening, with the Lord's help and the Lord's enabling, if we could turn back to that portion of Scripture that we read, First Kings, and if we read at verse seven, uh, verse one of chapter seventeen. First Kings, chapter seventeen, and verse one. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishb in Gilead said to Ahab. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. You know, when we think of Elijah, we think of him as one of the all-time greats. We think of Elijah as this wonderful prophet of the Lord. We think of him as a faithful servant of the Lord. And I suppose you could say that Elijah, he's, in our, well, in my mind anyway, he's right up there with Moses. Because Moses appeared alongside Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. And when we think of Elijah, we think of him as a man who was fearless in his faith. We think of him as a man who was strong in his convictions. We think of him as someone who was willing to stand alone. We think of, of Elijah as a man of prayer, a man of passion. A man of purpose. We think of Elijah, when we think of him, we think of him maybe as a super Christian. Who walked closely with the Lord all the days of his life. And Elijah, sometimes in my mind, I think that this man walked so closely with the Lord. And he was so holy that the Lord took him straight to heaven. He didn't need to die. You know, is it true to say that when we think of Elijah, we think of him as a man who lived up to his name. Because the name Elijah, it means my God is Jehovah. My God is Jehovah. And when we think of this man, we think of him as someone who is so unlike us. And yet, when the greatest commentary of the Bible, which is the Bible, when the Bible gives commentary on Elijah, the Bible tells us that Elijah was a man just like us. In his New Testament letter to struggling Christians who were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ, James, you remember, he concludes his letter by reminding these persecuted Christians that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And James, he illustrated this by saying to these persecuted Christians that Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, And for three years and six months, it did not rain. And we're told that when he prayed again, and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. And then James, he actually applies this to uh, the Christians of his day. And he says to them, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. And will cover a multitude of sins. And you know that's what Elijah was trying to do. Elijah saw his people. The people of Israel. Elijah saw them wandering away from the truth of the Lord. And Elijah's mission. His purpose. Was that he sought to bring these people back. In order to save their souls from death. 
As a prophet in Israel, Elijah sought to call the Lord's people to turn away from their idolatry and their disobedience and once again turn back to the Lord and serve him. But you know, as we consider this opening passage in our study of the prophet Elijah, we are actually given the spiritual state of the kingdom of Israel. And the truth is, the kingdom of Israel was in a spiritual state. They were in an absolute mess. And they needed deliverance. But there would only be deliverance when they turned from their idolatry and they turned back to the Lord. And there are three things that I'd like us just to draw out from this passage and see the spiritual state of the kingdom of Israel. I want us to see, first of all, spiritual darkness, then spiritual drought, and then lastly, spiritual deliverance. Spiritual darkness, spiritual drought, and spiritual deliverance. So we look, first of all, at spiritual darkness. Spiritual darkness. Look at chapter 16 and verse 29. It says there, in the 38th year of of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. The story of Elijah begins with King Ahab. King Ahab succeeded his father, as we read there three times, he succeeded his father Omri to the throne of the northern kingdom of Israel. And we're told that this took place in the 38th year of King Asa. (coughs) King Asa was the king over the southern kingdom of Judah. And King Asa is mentioned here not only to give us a timeline as to when King Ahab took the throne in the northern kingdom of Israel, But also King Asa is mentioned here in order to remind us that the nation of Israel at this point in time is a divided nation. The nation of Israel, it wasn't a united kingdom. It was a divided kingdom with two different kings. Israel was the northern kingdom and it was the larger of the two kingdoms. And then there was Judah in the south. That was the southern kingdom. It was the smaller kingdom. But the amazing thing is Judah... Judah had the temple. Judah had Jerusalem. Judah had the Ark of the Covenant. Judah was the more faithful kingdom because even though they turned away from the Lord and even though they were exiled into Babylon, the Lord never cast them off. But for the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, they were a a kingdom in a, a downward spiral and they were going further and further away from the Lord and further away from his covenant. And that's what we're told in verse 30. Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Israel was a kingdom that was progressing in sin. They were progressing away from the Lord and away from his word and away from his covenant. But as you remember, it wasn't always like this. This wasn't always the history of the people of Israel. Because you'll remember that the first true king in the nation of Israel, before it was divided, the first true king was King David. David was the man after God's own heart. David was the Lord's anointed. And as the Lord's anointed, David, he captured the Ark of the Covenant from the Philistines. He established the city of Jerusalem as the worship center for the nation of Israel. David led the Israelites in worship 
in worshipping the Lord, the covenant king. David was the man after God's own heart. And he took his responsibility seriously because he led the people of Israel to love the Lord and to worship the Lord and to follow the Lord and to obey the Lord. And Solomon after him sought to do the same. Solomon, you'll remember, he built the temple in Jerusalem. And when the temple was completed, you read, you can read at the beginning of the, of the book of Kings, the glory of the Lord came to dwell in the temple at Jerusalem. It was a wonderful moment in the history of the Israelites. But Solomon had a problem. Solomon had a problem. And back in chapter 11, we're told that King Solomon loved many foreign women. And we're told in that chapter, the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart away after, after their gods. But Solomon clung to these in love, and his wives turned away his heart, from, heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly th true to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father. It was Solomon's love for foreign women that eventually divided the kingdom of his, the, the nation of Israel. Because Solomon's two sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, Rehoboam was, he became the king over the southern kingdom of Judah. And Jeroboam was made king over the northern kingdom of Israel. But it was as a result of, of Solomon's ungodly example that the successive kings over the kingdom of Israel, that they married foreign wives. And you know, it should always be a warning to us <coughs> that our Christian witness is very important. How we live our lives as Christians, as Christian parents, as Christian workers, wherever we are, how we conduct ourselves by our character and our conversation is so important. Because we are an example just like Solomon was. We are an, exa an example, not only an example in our godliness, but sometimes we are also an example in our ungodliness. And you know, God forbid that we would be an ungodly example to, the, to others by our character or our conduct or our conversation. God forbid that we would lead others astray by the way we live our lives and by the way we conduct ourselves as Christians. God forbid that our character or even our conversation would be a stumbling block to others and their spiritual growth. And you know, that's what Paul actually warned Timothy. He said to Timothy, be an example. Be an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And for King Solomon and King Jeroboam and then King Omri and then King Ahab, they progressed further and further away from the Lord. And yet they were meant to be the spiritual leaders in the, in the kingdom of Israel. They were meant to be an example to the people. Because it was the responsibility of the king. It was the responsibility of the king to lead the people of Israel to faithfully worship the Lord. But since the time of King Solomon, there was this progression of sin. Away from the Lord. Away from his word. And away from his covenant. There was this progression away from the light into a deeper and deeper spiritual darkness. And so when it comes to King Ahab, 
Listen to what the Bible has to say about him. It says in verse 30, And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And is it as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. You know, the Bible repeats the fact that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord than all the kings who were before him. By marrying Princess Jezebel, the daughter of a foreign king, and making her Ahab's foreign wife, who worshipped and served foreign gods, Ahab, he may have secured political stability. Ahab may have guaranteed economic growth for his kingdom. But in doing so, he forfeited his soul and gained spiritual darkness. Because when the spiritual leader rejects the Lord and bows down to other gods, and even, he even built a temple in Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. He built a a temple for this god, Baal, and bowed down to him in God's holy land. Do you know when the king does that? When the spiritual state of the kingdom of Israel is doing these things, it's in a state of spiritual darkness. And you know, we can see the same thing happening in our own nation today. When the leaders of our nation reject the Lord, when the media rejects the Lord, when our leaders and our media encourage our nation to worship every other God and every other idol instead of the Lord, we're lost. And you know, the idol of the 21st century, it isn't Baal as it is here. The idol of the 21st century is self. You know, we're obsessed with promoting self. Providing for self. Pleasuring self. And when self is to the fore instead of the Lord. When self is first instead of seeking the Lord first. We will do whatever it takes. Until we are pleasing self. And like it was for the kingdom of Israel. And like it is for us as the United Kingdom of Britain. When the leaders of the kingdom. They may secure political stability. They may be able to get. To guarantee growth, economic growth, but in doing so, they are forfeiting their soul and they're gaining spiritual darkness. It's a warning. But you know, that spiritual darkness, it leads to a spiritual drought. That's what we see secondly. Spiritual darkness, then spiritual drought. Look at verse 1 of chapter 17. We're told now Elijah the Tishbite of Tish ben Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Do you know the moment Ahab married Jezebel, she became queen over the northern kingdom of Israel. And Jezebel, she not only moved into the palace with her newfound king, but all of her gods came with her. Jezebel had lots of baggage. And, as we shall see in the coming weeks, Jezebel had lots of demands over her new king and husband, Ahab. 
But as we said, the spiritual darkness overshadowing the kingdom of Israel, it led to a spiritual drought. But the spiritual drought in the kingdom, it was expressed by the Lord to his people by a physical drought. And the message of this spiritual drought was brought to King Ahab by the Lord's prophet, Elijah. And you know, it's at this point that Elijah, he just bursts onto the scene. There's no introduction. We don't know where Elijah's come from. We don't know anything about his background or his upbringing. We don't even know where Elijah met with King Ahab. All we know is that this man, Elijah the Tishbite, all we know is that he is the Lord's prophet. But as it often is with the Bible, personal details aren't important. Because the Lord's message is what's important. And the message Elijah had come to declare to King Ahab was that the Lord was going to inflict covenant curses upon his covenant people in the kingdom of Israel because of their covenant unfaithfulness and idolatry. And you know, that was Elijah's role as the Lord's prophet. As a prophet, Elijah's role, it was twofold. He was to be a foreteller and a forthteller. As a prophet, Elijah was not only to foretell future events, but he was also to foretell. Elijah was to be a preacher of the gospel. He was to be a, a herald of the truth. He was to be a minister of God's word. As a foreteller, Elijah was to address the people of his day and proclaim God's truth and herald God's covenant and challenge any who worshipped false gods and bowed down to idols. Elijah's office as the Lord's prophet was to keep order in the kingdom of Israel and ensure that the king and the covenant people worshipped the Lord. But if they turned away from the Lord, then the Lord's prophet, his responsibility was to call them back to covenant faithfulness. And that was Elijah's responsibility. He was to remind the king and he was to remind the people in the kingdom of Israel that their priority is to worship the Lord and to serve him. But because Ahab had bowed down to Baal and married this foreign idolater, Queen Jezebel, and set up temples in his own kingdom in order to lead the covenant people to worship this God, Baal, because of all that, the Lord sends Elijah with a message to declare to King Ahab that the Lord is going to inflict covenant curses upon his covenant people in the kingdom of Israel because of their covenant unfaithfulness and idolatry. And you know, when you look at the situation that was escalating in the kingdom of Israel, you could say it was a covenant crisis. It was a covenant crisis. Because here was the Lord's covenant people. They are the, the direct descendants of Abraham. The man whom God entered into that covenant with. And as we were singing in Psalm 105, the covenant that the Lord made with Abraham was a binding covenant. It was a covenant that would stand forever, for all generations. But that covenant had conditions. The Lord had said that obedience would bring blessing. But disobedience would bring cursing. And when the Lord gave the law to Moses, these covenant blessings and curses they were spelled out to the people of Israel. The Lord warned his covenant people that if they turn away from the Lord and turn to idols, 
covenant blessings would be removed and covenant curses would follow. The Lord said in Deuteronomy 11 verses 16 and 17, Take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship worship them, lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you, and he shut up the heavens so that there be no rain, and the land yield no produce, and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. And that was going to be the covenant crisis in the kingdom of Israel, all because of this covenant curse. King Ahab and the people, they had provoked the anger of the Lord by bowing down to worship Baal. And here we see Elijah, the Lord's covenant prophet, pronouncing the covenant curse to the face of the covenant king. He says in verse 1, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. But you know what's interesting is that this covenant curse, it was far more than just judgment upon the Lord's covenant people. Because by saying that there would be no dew from the earth and no rain coming from heaven, it was going to make the covenant people realise that Baal or Baal, he was just a dumb idol. And I say that because Baal was the god of fertility. He was the god of growth. You worshipped Baal if you wanted a child. You worshipped Baal if you wanted a good crop in the coming year. Because Baal, he promised to provide growth. He promised to provide blessing on your family and on your land. Baal promised to provide good weather, good growth and a good harvest. If you just bow down to him. But what Ahab didn't realise was that when Elijah pronounced this covenant curse on the covenant king and his covenant people, the Lord was going to remove all the blessings from them until they would turn back to him. It wasn't just going to be a bad season. There was going to be a drought in the kingdom of Israel lasting three and a half years. The spiritual darkness had led to a spiritual drought. The kingdom was in a mess. But then look at what the Lord says to Elijah in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 17. The word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. What's surprising about the Lord's command here when he told Elijah to go and hide by the brook Cherith What's surprising is that he told him to go and hide. But what Elijah wasn't to ha- he wasn't there to hide because King Ahab was, had this warrant out to arrest him. Or because Queen Jezebel wanted him dead. Like she killed many of the Lord's prophets. The Lord told Elijah to go and hide by the brook Cherith. In order to heighten the Lord's judgment upon the kingdom of Israel. <coughs> it's all judgment. That's what's coming here. You know, Dale Ralph Davis, he states in his commentary, he says, The disappearance of Elijah spells the absence of the word of God from the life of Israel. Israel's judgment is the drought of the land and the silence of the Lord. Israel's judgment is the drought of the land and the silence of the Lord. 
And you know, we have to wonder what spiritual state we are in as individuals, as a congregation, as a presbytery, as a denomination, as a church, as a nation. What is our spiritual state? Are we in a spiritual state? Are you in a spiritual state? Has the Lord removed his covenant blessing because of our faithfulness to his, un, our unfaithfulness to his covenant? Has the Lord become silent because we have ignored his word and stopped speaking to him? Has the Lord removed his voice because he's not first in our life? Has the Lord brought spiritual drought because we're in spiritual darkness? What is our spiritual state? And you know the progression we're being confronted with here in the life of, El- of King Ahab and the people of Israel. It's a progression of backsliding. That's what they were doing as, an, as a kingdom. They were backsliding further and further away from the Lord. Because the spiritual state of the kingdom of Israel. It was being overshadowed by spiritual darkness. Which led to a spiritual drought. And what they needed was spiritual deliverance. They needed spiritual deliverance. And that's what I'd like us to consider lastly. Spiritual deliverance. So we've seen spiritual darkness, spiritual drought and spiritual deliverance. Spiritual deliverance. Look at verse 4 of chapter 17. The Lord says, You shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. With the kingdom of Israel now in a spiritual and physical drought, food was scarce and water was limited. But for his own purposes and glory, The Lord had to preserve Elijah. Elijah's work was not yet completed. And until Elijah's work was done, the Lord was going to see to it that Elijah would be kept. And you know, it's the greatest comfort in the word of God that we are kept by the power of God. And we are kept until our work here on earth is done. Because when our appointed task, whatever that is, when it has been accomplished In our life, the Lord will take us home to be with himself. And he will take us in his time and by his chosen means. But Elijah's work, as we can see, it's just begun. So the Lord wanted to provide for his servant. And we see that when the Lord commanded his prophet Elijah to hide by the brook Cherith, the Lord also commanded the ravens to feed Elijah both in the morning and in the evening. And it's remarkable that the Lord used an unclean bird to feed his righteous servant. The raven was religiously unclean. It wasn't to be eaten because it was a scavenger bird. And most people, they viewed them as pests because they would steal food or they would steal anything they could get their claws into. The ravens, they were viewed and they're still viewed as a nuisance. They're an unclean bird. And you know, it's interesting We would refer to a group of birds as a flock of birds. But when you see a group of ravens, they're referred to as unkindness. 
That's what you call a group of ravens. You call them unkindness. And yet, what we read here is that when the Lord commanded these unclean scavengers, when he commanded them to feed his righteous servant, they were very kind to Elijah. They were very kind to him. But notice what we're told in verses 7 and 8, that when the brook dried up, the Lord told Elijah to move on. And in verse 9, the Lord says, Arise, go to Zenephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow to f- there to feed you. You know, it's amazing to see that for a nation, that had f- they had ca- as a nation, they had failed to care for their prophets, which they were meant to do. And yet the Lord sent unclean ravens, and then he sent an unlikely widow to feed and take care of Elijah. He sent unclean ravens and an unlikely widow. And this widow, was, she was unlikely, not only because she was poor, but also because she was foreign. She wasn't an Israelite widow. She wasn't a Jew. She was a Gentile. She was an outsider, you could say. In fact, the widow of Zerophath, she was from Queen Jezebel's home territory. She lived in the center of Baal worship. And yet that's where Elijah was sent. And Elijah's were told, He obeyed. He went to this widow of Zenophath. And you know, this widow of Zenophath, she was famous. Because even Jesus mentions her in Luke chapter 4. When Jesus is pronouncing judgment upon the Israelites for rejecting him as the Christ and the true prophet of God. Jesus says to the people, he says, I tell you. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. The point that Jesus was making was that the Lord sent Elijah to Zarephath beyond the border. He went to Zarephath As a symbol of judgment upon the kingdom of Israel. He went as a symbol of judgment that they weren't willing to look after their own prophets. But you know, Elijah also went as an act of grace. He went as an act of grace towards those who were over the border. Those who were the Gentiles. So it was not only a message, it was a message of judgment to the Lord's people. But it was a message of grace to the Gentiles. That the Lord's grace is going to be extended beyond the boundary of Israel to all the Gentile nations of the world. And you know, that was the great covenant promise that every nation, tribe and tongue will praise and magnify the Lord. But you know, when Elijah met this widow from Zarephath, the drought had affected her too. She and her son, they had nothing left. They were just going to eat what was to them, it was going to be their last supper. They were just going to eat and die. They're going to prepare this food, eat it, as it says, and die. And yet Elijah, he asks for the first bite of her last supper. And you know, it seems cruel. But we're told in verse 15 that the widow of Zarephath obeyed and did as Elijah said. And we're told that the jar and the jug were never empty. The jar and the jug were never empty. And is that not what faith is? Because faith realises that you're completely empty. Faith receives the word of God 
And faith rests upon that word day by day. Faith realises that you're completely empty. Faith receives the word of God and faith rests upon that word day by day. And that's what this widow did. She realised that she had nothing left. Nothing left to cling to. She, she realised she had nothing left. And then she received the word of the Lord from the prophet Elijah. And she rested upon it day by day until the end of the drought. And the jar and the jug were never empty. It's wonderful. The jar and the jug were never empty. And you know, my friend, sometimes the Lord will do that in our life. Sometimes the Lord will empty us. He will empty us in order to fill us. The Lord will make us realize that we have nothing or no one left to cling to except him. The Lord will cause us to receive the word day by day and rest upon it. And you know, that's what we're to do. Something we need to recapture in our day and generation. That faith realises that you're completely empty. Faith receives the word of God. And faith rests upon that word day by day. You know, as the old saying goes, I'm sure you've heard uh, Reverend William MacLeod saying it often. When the cupboards were empty, the churches were full. But now that the cupboards are full, the churches are empty. I know there's never been a truer statement. But you know, it's when the church realises, or when our churches become empty, that we need to realise that we have nothing or no one to cling to except receive the word of the Lord and rest upon it day by day. We need to go back to this word. And you know, believe it or not, that's what Elijah had to learn. He was a man just like us. He had to learn it. And that's what the widow of Zarephath had to learn. Because when her son died, and I know I'm just skimming through all this, but I'm trying to draw out the theme. When her son died, when the widow of Zarephath's son died, which was reflecting the spiritual darkness and the spiritual drought of the kingdom of Israel, (coughs) he was only delivered by the word of the Lord. There was resurrection and restoration by the word of the Lord. And that's what happened in your life and my life. There was resurrection and restoration from spiritual darkness and a spiritual drought by the word of the Lord. And that's how this chapter on the spiritual state of the kingdom of Israel, that's how it concludes. We're told in verse 24, And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The chapter concludes with a Gentile, someone who's outside the kingdom of Israel. She's confirming to the Lord's prophet Elijah that he has the word of the Lord in his mouth. He is the only means of resurrection and restoration for the kingdom of Israel. He is the only means of spiritual deliverance for people in bondage. She says, now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. And you know, like Elijah, we are prone to forgetting that the word of God is the power of God unto salvation. It's quick, it's powerful, and it's sharp, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we don't need gimmicks. We don't need to change the message. We don't need a different approach. But like Elijah, we must realize that we have nothing or no one left to cling to except to receive the word of the Lord and rest upon it day by day. That's what will bring deliverance. That's what brings hope. That's what brings salvation. 
the word of the Lord. And that's what Elijah had to hear. He had to go to another land to hear it. Now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. And you know, it's that statement that prepares the way for dealing with the spiritual state of the kingdom of Israel. And that happens in the next chapter. The spiritual showdown on Mount Carmel, which Lord willing will consider next week. So in chapter 17, there's a spiritual state. It's a spiritual darkness and a spiritual drought. But the Lord has called Elijah to provide a spiritual deliverance. So may the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Uh, Let us pray. O Lord, our gracious God, forgive us, we pray, if we have wronged thee in any way. We realise, Lord, that thou art one who is holy and thy covenant is true. And help us, Lord, to be faithful. Help us to see the error of the ways of Israel and to realise that we are not to turn to other gods or to other idols but that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. Help us to stick close to thy word. Help us, Lord, to walk in the light as thou art in the light and to live lives that bring glory to thy name. We thank thee, O Lord, for thy word, that it challenges us, that it reminds us that we are those who have been called, we are called out, that we are the church of Jesus Christ and that we are to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Help us then, we pray, to be faithful, to be faithful to thee, to bring glory to thy name, to seek to extend thy kingdom. Lord, that thou wouldest use us for thy glory, that thou, Lord, wouldest use us in our different homes, our different families, our different spheres of work, that we would be witnesses for thee to the ends of the earth. All keep us, Lord, we pray. Bless us together, we ask. Help us in our study to keep learning more and more about this wonderful Saviour who does in us and for us exceedingly abundantly above all, more than we could ask or even think. Keep us then, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. (coughs) We're going to bring our service to a conclusion by singing the words of Psalm 89. (coughs) Psalm 89. We're singing from the beginning down to the verse mark 4. Psalm 89. Another psalm that reminds us of God's covenant faithfulness. And this is a psalm that... Psalm 105 was about God's covenant with Abraham. And Psalm 89 is about God's covenant with David. And it's the same covenant, the covenant of grace. God's mercies I will ever sing, and with my mouth I shall thy faithfulness make to be known to generations all. For mercy shall be built, said I, forever to endure. Thy faithfulness, even in the heavens, thou wilt establish sure. Down to the verse marked 4 of Psalm 89, to God's praise.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forevermore. Amen.